You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of the podcast. Today, we're going to take on some challenges, some Mm -hmm. factors as we enter the holiday season. And really, it's we want to think about some of these things that scholars think about. Mm -hmm. And this can be sensitive. Yeah. And I think it's important that we we take some time, we unpack some of particularly this idea of the virgin birth. What does the Bible have to say about it? But primarily, how do scholars wrestle with this? Mm-hmm. What, what are the factors that have this coming up again and again mm-hmm. for scholars? Books have been written about it, which maybe at the end we'll, we'll drop a few of those uh, resources. But we want to kind of take some time to, to set up what are the factors here? Right. What does the Bible have to say about it? What context are we looking at yeah. when we're talking about the virgin birth? And, you know, what are some conclusions? What are some, how can we comment on what, what it is that we're doing, even in this podcast, that mm-hmm. may be reflective of what scholars do? Let's jump into the episode. There's no part of the Bible that can responsibly escape an engagement of history, and that includes Jesus. Matthew's birth story is essentially midrashic. It's telling the story in a creative way that will signal very clearly to the people, we're dealing with somebody who is very, very special. That's not a problem to be overcome. That's something that has to be theologically embraced. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Why don't we start with, let's set this up. Well, what are the challenges here? Well, I think just a broader comment is that, you know, we do a lot of like looking at Genesis in context, you know, or Exodus in context, all sorts of things. And the question is, are there parts of the Bible that aren't affected by historical context? And my answer there is a resounding no. There is no such thing as humanless context for anything, even the God-man's birth, right? Even that. So the interest that we have is, you know, not ruining Christmas, either jokingly or otherwise, you know, you, you, people have listened and read our stuff, you know, we just joke around about that stuff. But it's really just to create the space to talk about 
the kinds of things that learned readers, and I think, frankly, just careful readers of the biblical text themselves, will understand and say, ah, this is something I need to think about more deeply, and I wasn't really aware of it. Right. So, and that's that's really what this is about. We're not trying to take anything away from people. I have my own views on how incarnation works, and it's a little subtle, but it's by no means just my own. So, But I, that's not the point. The point isn't even what I think. The point is just looking at some of these factors. So let's have let's go right to the evidence. Let's let's look at some data of how does the Bible present this and what are some things again that scholars are looking at when they're trying to assess what's going on here with the with the virgin birth. I, I think you know the data have to be interpreted too. Let's just right, but it's the thing that these are factors people look at. So well, I don't want you to interpret the data. I want you to give me just the facts, just the hard facts, just with the hard no, facts. Because I want to interpret. I'll just give you the straight poop here, right? So no, that's exactly. that's impossible. So so I mean, for example, I think everyone. It's very straightforward. I think most people have noticed this, that the virgin birth story occurs in Matthew and it occurs in Luke, and that's it. Nowhere else, which is in and of itself pretty interesting. And they tell the story differently from their own perspectives. And when we factor into this that that Mark just blows that off entirely— and if Mark is the earliest gospel, which most every New Testament scholar will say, yeah, the, the, the evidence definitely points to that, then we have to think of Matthew and Luke as having some sort of an innovation, so to speak, in the Jesus tradition. And then John just goes with cosmic stuff all, right from the beginning, right? So that, they're no help. So we have the two, and, and you know, they have different ways of telling the story. You know, in, in Matthew, it's an angel appears to Joseph in these dreams, and no one's appearing to Mary. And then in Luke, you have Gabriel having a conversation with a number of people like John the Baptist's father and Mary and, you know, on it goes. So, like, who's talking to who? Like, how's the announcement made? It's like they're not quite on the same page and they have a different perspective on it. Well, before we get into, I think it'd be great to go down the road of Matthew and Luke in particular, but I'm going to back up because there's a nuance here that I think is important. And it is when we're talking about the gospels, if we're used to, again, you know, I grew up in a tradition where when we're reading the gospels, who cares if it's only in Matthew and Luke, right. because there's four of them mm -hmm. and they're read flatly. But what you said was really important that scholars recognize Mark is the earliest. Mm -hmm. So if Mark is the earliest, and, and I'm going to throw in Paul here too, Paul didn't have the gospels. Right. Mark is early. So mm -hmm. the two earliest sources we have for this story of Jesus don't mention a virgin birth, is, yeah. is what I hear you saying. Yeah, and that's significant, I think. Yeah, so know. then when we're talking about Matthew and Luke, we're saying, use the word innovation, insofar as at the very least, we would say the writings that came second are the ones that have it, not the writings that came first. Or, or later. Well, later. Wherever, so to, yeah. Right. Well, okay, Jared, while we're on Paul, just read that. Romans 1, 3 to 4, what does it say? So I'm going to read from one to, let's see, one to four, one to five, maybe. Gosh, um, serious. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, and what's striking is that Paul has opportunity to talk about the virginal conception if he wants to, but here, and I, I know there are answers to this, I just disagree with them, but his earthly life, he's at Senate of David, and what makes him Lord, what appoints him to that, 
is his resurrection. It's not his birth, for Paul at least. And we have to remember that Paul is writing, Paul dies probably before any of the Gospels are written, certainly before Matthew and Luke. Yeah, it could have been, it could have been, was born the Son of God by nature of the virgin birth, but instead it was appointed the Son of God by the resurrection. What makes him Lord is his vindication by God by being raised from the dead. That's what makes him Lord of heaven and earth. It's not his birth. Now, no one's saying that his birth makes him Lord of heaven and earth necessarily, but it's still, he, Paul doesn't mention it. And that's like, when that's he, a head scratcher, folks. And it's important that Paul I would uses lead the, with that. Paul uses Paul. the word son of God. Yeah. Which again, if son is tied to birth, there's a perfect chance to make that connection and Paul doesn't. So at the very least, we have a different perspective in Paul than we have in Matthew. And right. Luke, right. And I think, you know, I, I do want to, again, underscore something here that what we just said in and of itself doesn't prove one thing or the right. other. That's not what this is about, folks. It's more, if you say, I believe in the virgin birth and there is no question about it. It's in the Bible. Well, do you know that it's in only in two and it's later gospels, not the original one, and nobody else in the New Testament talks about it? That's at least, at least know that well, it's, as it's you're thinking some, through this. It's adding some nuance. Like we talked about the right. word earlier. It's a factor. And so when we're formulating opinions about these things, it's good to know all the factors. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are some passages that people will point to, and understandably so, that's sort of like, well, but this demonstrates that the, the virginal conception is very important. You know, so for example, in Luke chapter two, we have that story that's only in Luke, where Jesus is 12 years old and he sort of like gets left behind during one of the Passover journeys mm-hmm. that they took, which I think is a hilarious scene, frankly. Just anybody who's lost their kid at the mall, like. I thought you had him, you know, but they're saying, hey, you know, Jesus, what the heck? You know, I mean, we were worried sick about you. And Jesus says famously, don't you know, I have to be about my father's business. And again, here is a factor that scholars will bring into this on the basis of other things in the Bible itself, and also on the basis of things outside of the Bible saying, okay, well, that in and of itself doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Why wouldn't it mean that? I think this is an important one to unpack a little bit. Well, why would it? You know, to say God is your father, for example, Jesus teaches in, you know, the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven. That's like a normal thing to say if you're into this Jesus business, right? So, yeah, because I, yeah. I say that because the argument usually is, well, this is a unique thing. No it's one, not unique. No one had yeah. called God father before. Right. And so Jesus does this in this unique way. But as right. you point out, Jesus himself in the Lord's prayer democratizes that, our which, father. Which, to be fair, is in Matthew, not Luke, but Luke also has a version of that <laughs> later on, right? So again, you know, that's it's just, I find that interesting. That's all. I just, I, I look at that and say, hmm, that's really interesting. And in fact, you know, there is a whole train of thought in scholarship by people like, you know, Andrew Lincoln is a name that I want to mention here. He wrote a book maybe 15 years ago called Born of a Virgin, Reconceiving, yeah, that's an intentional pun, folks. Reconceiving Jesus in the Bible tradition and theology, where as an Anglican, he's working these things out for himself. And there's a whole line of thought of people who say, well, to say born of a virgin is a convention, which we'll get into in a little bit later, I hope, is a convention of the time for talking about someone who has an extraordinary effect on people, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, Andrew believes that Jesus is different 
you know, he's not just another guy. And I, I, I believe the same thing. But he says it doesn't preclude that Jesus also has an earthly father, which would give him both sets of chromosomes, for example, which is sort of necessary for being a human being. Right. Now, before we go further, Jared, I, I want to again say something because I'm a little concerned that people are going to misunderstand what we're doing here, right? We're talking about factors. I'm well aware of the fact that there is an evangelical apologetics industry that has answers to all of these kinds of things to sort of keep everybody on the beach blanket. I just don't think those answers work very well if you look broadly at the historical context of these stories and when they were written and what might have been in the background as they were writing some of these things. Right? Yeah. Maybe we can talk about a few more pieces of kind of the biblical yeah, let's lay some of that stuff out. Yeah, more, and yeah. then let's go into the context because right. I think that will also, I think both are important, but I think it may land with people differently to say, okay, let's look at some of these texts right. versus, yeah, those texts, but those texts also come from a context. Right. And right. those are both important. Yeah. So, you know, one thing we were talking about before we started recording here was Psalm 2. Yes. And yes. the coronation, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, a psalm of, um, I don't know how it would have been used in the history of Israel, but it's- when It, it might have been used for when kings when became kings. When kings became kings, we, we read yeah. this and it becomes, uh, and I think is also referenced in the New Testament, right. today I have begotten you. Yeah. And the point being, when it's used in Psalms, it's clearly being used for a human king. So begotten doesn't necessarily mean begotten in a in a biological sense. Right. Now, the thing, some people could say, and I, I would understand this, yeah, but in the New Testament, it takes on a deeper, thicker meaning than it did in the Hebrew Bible. That's fine. I mean, that if people, if that's how people want to interpret the data or have reasons for doing so, that's absolutely but fine. But that's the question is, would you have reasons to do it other than to say, well, because Jesus said it. For me, that's a circular argument yeah. to say, well, it's deeper meaning because Jesus. Well, mm-hmm. why does that matter? Yeah. Because I already precluded, I've already concluded Things beforehand have to be a certain way. that Jesus right. It has to be this way because it is Jesus, if right. that makes sense. So to say, you know, in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you, obviously doesn't mean that the king doesn't have a father apart from... So it's sort of like this, like in Luke chapter 2, what we just talked about. It's a similar kind of idea. And it's just like, if that's a new thing, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it quite that way before. That's what, I mean, that's what biblical scholars do. They look at the New Testament traditions of Jesus, and they tie it to Jewish tradition and what the Hebrew Bible says and what Jewish tradition, how they handled certain things in the intervening century or two between the closing of the Hebrew Bible and then the time of Jesus. So that's that's a part of this. You're going to have to deal with that stuff because Jesus was Jewish, albeit in a Greco-Roman world, but he was still Jewish. And what might these things have meant back then? I want to go back and situate us because I think I have ringing in my ears my old apologetics ways, mm-hmm. which would say the only reason we'd even be having this conversation is sort of this anti-supernaturalism, right? The idea that, well, we're just trying to argue away the, the miracle of it all. But I just want to point out that this is an old conversation that was very popular 2,000 years ago. In the first, second, third centuries, people were reading this text and weren't concluding that Jesus was born of a virgin in this abstract sense mm-hmm. or this biological sense. But there, I'm just thinking of the view of adoptionism. That was very popular in the first, second, third centuries because mm-hmm. people were reading Psalm 2 mm-hmm. and saying, today I've begotten you. 
that seems like God is adopting a human king to mm-hmm. be the son in this monarchic sense. And we can get the New Testament into this too. Acts chapter two, a man, Peter is chiding the people for having crucified Jesus. This man attested by God, right? Yes. Now, Daniel Kirk, our friend, has a whole book by that title. Right. A and, man and talking about mm-hmm. Christology in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not John, because John's a different Christology, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's biblical data again. Exactly. And that's my yeah. point, is that if, if, we're, if we're talking about this and, and people's minds are going to, oh, this is a modern take to Mm -mm. do away with the miracles. I just would say like, now, of course, adoptionism was labeled as a heresy in fourth Mm -hmm. or fifth century. And so Mm -hmm. it sort of dropped off in popularity, but there's a reason that these people thousands of years ago were coming. It wasn't, they were anti-supernatural. It was, no, we were reading Psalm two. We're reading Acts two. We're looking at the data. We're looking at Mm -hmm. the baptism of Jesus. Today I have begotten you. It has this flavor to it. It It, is. It's a reasonable reading of the biblical data. It's a reasonable reading, and the church has gone in a different direction from that. Again, that's fine. We're not trying to overturn the history of Christianity here. We're just saying, you know, folks, we're probably talking about things that some people have already seen, but they're not sure what to do with right. it. Right. Exactly. And I so. think that's, I say it because again, where we started with is we're not trying to take anything away from people. It's trying to set a context that mm-hmm. if you notice these things, you are in good company. And it doesn't mean you have an anti-supernatural bias right. or you are have a proclivity for sin and you're looking for ways to dismantle yeah. the text as an authority you're in tickling, your life. Tickle itching ears kind of thing. Wolf in sheep's clothing, that yeah, kind of you're, nonsense. You're no, in good company, both ancient and modern scholars. Who have thought about this exactly. and who have the right to speak. Exactly. And we sometimes mute those voices. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, And it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in 
And you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So a little more on Luke, if I can, because yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. You know, Gabriel appears to Mary and talks about you. You will conceive, your son will be son of the Most High, and he will rule over the house of Jacob, and he'll be called Son of God. And all that is like this is Psalm two. It's also Second Samuel seven a little bit as well, which. Again, and, and when you keep reading in chapter one and chapter two of Luke, which are the two longest chapters in the New Testament, they just keep going. Anyway, but if, if you look at those, it's very, very clear in those opening chapters that the hope for this born child is to deliver the people of Israel, now called the Judahites, the Judeans, from their oppressors. Read Zechariah's prophecy when he is made unmute, you know, at the end of uh, the nine-month period. And that's exactly what he says. And Mary's song in Elizabeth's presence is like, you've exalted me, I've been humbled. And by the way, that's how you just do things. And that's the pattern that you follow, which is absolutely without question modeled on Hannah's song that is likewise praising that God humbles the proud and exalts, you know, the humble. And that is leading to, at the end of that song, it doesn't mention David by name because it can't yet, but that's absolutely where this is going. So Jesus is a David figure. Absolutely. There's no question. And what does this Messiah figure do? He rescues the people from the oppression of, of others. Now, I happen to think, as probably most people do, that Luke doesn't leave it there he develops Jesus in a bigger way where he's not just David, he's actually Caesar. Mm -hmm. And that comes when you see that most clearly when the shepherds are there and the angelic choir announces, you know, that Jesus, the Savior has been born to you and it's good news for all the people. And, you know, people have been talking for a long time about a particular, this is getting into Greco-Roman stuff a little bit, but we mm -hmm. can't, they Go overlap, we can't yeah. avoid it. Something called the Priene Calendar Inscription. It's about, it's pre-Christian by about a decade and it praises the birth of Caesar Augustus, because the Priene is a, is a little town. It's in Turkey now. It's on the coast, on the Aegean Sea coast. And they were dedicating themselves to having their calendar shaped around the birth of Caesar Augustus. And they say things like, he was given to us by providence. There is a divine initiative there. And he is born to us, and there's never been anybody like him, and there'll never be anybody like him to come. And he is the Savior. This is the language we see in, in Luke. He's the Savior who brings peace and the good news, the euangelion, right? Mm -hmm. It uses that same word. So when you read that, which is much older than Luke, it's, you know, 
70, 80 years prior to Luke, but it's in the air. Not that he's reading this inscription saying, I think I'll copy it. It's in the air. That's, it's, that's it's how you context. talk. That's it. It's the context. And so you, you read this in Luke and you can read it in two ways, apart from that context and say whatever you want or read it engaging the context, making tentative conclusions or none at all, but just reading it in light of that and saying, I think Luke is presenting Jesus as a better Caesar, <laughs> right? So it's Luke has that Gentile feel that Matthew doesn't quite have, but they have different reasons for telling the story. They both have a Greco-Roman context, but they also have different reasons. And I, I want to say agendas in, in the best sense of the word. They have something, it's like an agenda for a meeting, right? Here are the steps I'm going to take to get to a certain goal. And they're both doing that. But it's not just, I mean, understanding something of that context, I just think helps a little bit. I don't know. Well, it doesn't, uh, I think you're being generous. I'm trying to be generous. I don't here. think it just helps. It's Christmas time. I think it's a factor. It's yeah. an important factor in what Luke is trying to do. And I think it's, I would go far, so far as to say, I think it's disingenuous for scholars or for people who have been educated in these things to come to theological conclusions without taking these factors into consideration. That I will agree, yeah. I think it's disingenuous, and I think it's important that we figure, we have to wrestle with this. We have to figure out what we do with it. And it absolutely shapes to know that this prying calendar inscription exists in that it's not an isolated event, which I think we can sometimes think about archaeology and these things as though it's like, that's it. But it's a representation of how people thought Mm -hmm. of Caesar. So this isn't the only time euangelion or the gospel, the good news is mm -hmm. used in reference to Caesar. We can right. come to that conclusion. To not factor that into how we think about Luke's use of the exact same phrasing within a context of a birth of a king-like messiah figure. Mm -hmm. I think it's disingenuous. Right. And all that I think is an interpretation. Yeah, well, yeah what we do Jesus. what we do with it. Well, not just we, know. but what they did, what the biblical right. writers did. They were interpreting Jesus for their time and differently than Mark did and differently than John did and differently than Paul did. Yeah, and it's baked in and that's where I think if we can again, I'm I'm saying things more strongly than probably you will. If we deprogram the evangelical methodology and we see that the Bible itself is modeling this for us. Mm -hmm. Mark doesn't seem to have any qualms about interpreting the life of Jesus for the audience of Mark and that community and Matthew and Luke and John, they don't, they don't seem to be embarrassed that no, they're, they're shaping they're these quite stories. intentional because I mean, you know, literary critics of the new gospels will tell us that it's not just that Matthew and Luke are later and they're different. They're intentionally augmenting or changing or adjusting Mark's gospel in places to say what they need to say to their constituency, let's say. Right. Yeah. This isn't just sloppy editing. This right. is an intentional, this is how you do... They're creations. They're literary tradition. creations based on a vorlage, as the Germans say, something that comes beforehand. And that's the four Gospels we have, you know? And Matthew and Luke are two of them, right? And, and they say something about Jesus. And the question is, why do they say it? And what is their intention? What are they trying to get across? And folks, you know, I think that's tricky business. I mean, if I knew what that was, I might be the only person ever to know what those intentions were. We don't know that, but what we have is literature that we can presume, I think Matthew's trying to say this. Here's my theory. How does that pan out with reading other stuff? Well, not too well. I have to think of another theory. But the point is that that conversation is an important one for people who want to be 
more than, oh gosh, I don't want to, more than just superficial readers and saying, what's well, there's this verse in the Bible and that's it. But the verse has a context. Well, it's not, the story has a context. It's not just superficial reading because I think there is, at least in, in the West, I would say in America, this is becoming less and less the case. But I think for your generation, my generation, mm-hmm. there is no such thing really as a superficial reading because it is always an inherited reading. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of what right. tradition are you inheriting when you read it? There is so much programmed already when we come to the text based on how steeped we are within certain Christian traditions. So I just think that's important because I kind of long for a day, and, and this is near and dear to my heart and probably yours too, mm-hmm. that the Bible for all people exists for a world in which someday there's a different default programming. Uh, yeah. So it's not there's a superficial and there is a deep. There is already a program out there. And it's sort of, is the default going to be one that takes into account these factors and these contexts mm-hmm. and wrestles with them? Or is it going to be a tradition that doesn't do that? And then how do you think about the nature of Christian faith as a result of that, let's say, reconfiguration? Yes. And if that freaks people out, I just want to say, I think that's what theology has always been. It's always, the Nicene Creed did that. Say more about that, because I think that's an important I think, again, yeah. that's one of those litmus tests of it's the It's not creeds. just reading the Bible. They, they read it through the lens of Greco-Roman philosophy, which is fine. I have no problem with that. But I mean, David Bentley Hart basically says something like they took a, the New Testament, is, which is fundamentally a Jewish apocalyptic text, and they reconfigured it, that's my word, in the context of Greco-Roman philosophy to serve certain polemical purposes or political purposes. And I don't look at that and say, oh my goodness, they ruined everything. It's just, well, that that's what happens when a story takes on a life of its own and then gets filtered through different and diverse cultures, you're going to do that, right? And I think the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, the writers of the New Testament were doing that with their own tradition. One quick example, I mean, I want to I want to move past the Gospels in a second here, but maybe just one more. And I think we've talked about this maybe in a, in a podcast, but you know, Matthew's use of Isaiah 7, 14. I, I'm glad you're bringing it up because that was the last thing we had to cover on our journey here is Isaiah 7. I know, we got to do that. And the thing is, you know, well, obviously Jesus was born of a literal virgin because Isaiah says so. But again, and this is, if you want to read a great book about, at least a chapter, Amy Jill Levine and Mark Brettler have a book, The Bible With and Without Jesus. I hope that's the right title, guys. Don't email me. You know, and, and they, they, they talk about this. And one thing that I think Mark wrote this chapter, he points out pretty obviously, he says, Isaiah seven fourteen doesn't say a virgin shall conceive. It says, even if it is virgin, it's a past tense. And he would say, a young woman has conceived and she will bear a son, or has born a son. Mm -hmm. And the point of that story is not the miraculous nature of the birth. It's the fact that by the time that child is old enough to know right from wrong, whatever age that is, this political threat that King Ahaz was concerned about in the 8th century, basically being attacked by Assyrians and by the Israelites in the north and others. To, it was it was sort of a crap show there at the point. Yeah. But, but the point is that by the time the child is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, this will not be a threat to you anymore. So that's the prophecy, right? Now, Matthew, I'm going to put it this way, and I, I'm going to stick by it. Matthew 
to make his case about Jesus exploited the linguistic ambiguity of that word once it got put into the Greek, Greek. Old Testament, yep. parthenos, which is a word you can use to translate the Hebrew alma, but it has other connotations. And that was very intentional on Matthew's part, because if you want to talk about someone who's had a major impact, an influential figure, maybe the most influential person, you're going to tell that story in a certain way that accents that person's uniqueness. The irony, however, and I guess we're going to get into the next issue here, which is a Greco-Roman context. The irony is that that kind of way of talking about great figures of the past is by no means unique to the New Testament. It's well, just, and maybe it's unique and it's not unique, and that's the point. It's not alien. It's distinct. It's distinct. But it's not unique. Yeah, that's a good way of saying yeah, it. Right. Because the only reason it makes sense is we already have a culture where extraordinary people come from extraordinary births and yeah. origins. Yeah. So it can't be unique because then it doesn't make sense. But in a context where I'm trying to liken it to sort of how we tell our modern day kind of hero stories, ours mm-hmm. is much more like bootstrap it's like we came from, I mean, if you're going to be an extraordinary person in America, if you're going to tell your story with a certain emphasis, you're probably going to tell it with the emphasis of, I didn't have much and mm-hmm. I pulled myself up from my bootstraps and I became great. Even if that's not completely true, you'll emphasize that part because mm-hmm. it fits the cultural milieu of how we want to tell these stories right. of our origins. Yeah. And the Greco-Roman world had that as well. And even within the context of a virgin birth. Right. We have that. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we're saying is that there's no part of the Bible that can responsibly escape an engagement of history. And that includes Jesus. That's what you get, folks, if you have a human being, however special and divine this human being is, but you still have a person in history who has a context, right? And, well, and you have other people telling the story mm-hmm. who are part of a culture. I don't know how you don't tell a story that is completely not just impacted by, but within the world of the humans who are telling the story. So in terms of Greco-Roman stuff, you know, I mentioned this praying calendar in scripture. Yeah, we talked about right? praying calendar. Which is Augustus, but you know, his father, Julius Caesar, was also declared God. And so... His son is, in effect, then... The son of God. Son of God. And then when Augustus died, which was, I think, in the year AD 14, Mm -hmm. around there, then the stories about him began to be more expanded, and now he's the son of Apollo. By the way, this book by Andrew Lincoln, he goes into great detail. I'm trying to summarize some of the stuff that he says here, but I find that fascinating, you know, because Remus and Romulus, you know, the, the legendary founders of Rome had stories written about them that involves things like a very special kind of birth. And, and that's what happens. I mean, I mean, think about it this way. When Jesus is born, leave Matthew and Luke just for the moment out of our minds. Like he's just another baby, but then he goes and he does these amazing things and he's crucified and raised from the dead. And it's like, we got to tell this story. How do you tell it? Well, there are conventions for telling this kind of story. Mm-hmm. And that's another way of putting this whole challenge as factors, like to what extent are ancient conventions informing the biblical writers? And I don't know the answer to that, but one thing I'm willing, there's a hill I'm willing to die on, they're being influenced by something. 
because the connections, you see them historically a little bit. And there are things that, you know, this is a, um, the Gospels are part of a genre of antiquity called bios, B-I-O-S, which is, you know, biography, but it's not really a biography in the modern sense. They're much more creative because they're trying to tell a story. And some of these birth stories and other outside of the New Testament, these miraculous birth stories include things like genealogies, like think of Matthew, how mm-hmm. it begins, right? That's not an accident, right? Uh, having dreams, Joseph has dreams in Matthew's gospel, angelic predictions and presences and signs and things like even having diviners, people who see things like the Magi, mm-hmm. right? Or a sign that tells you that something's happening. You know, that's, you could argue, and, and Robert Gundry did argue this, and he got thrown out of the Evangelical Theological Society for saying yeah. Matthew's birth story is essentially midrashic. In other words, it's not giving us historical fact in some bare sense. It's telling the story in a creative way that will signal very clearly to the people we're dealing with somebody who is very, very special. Yeah. Right. And at some point, I don't know, I just I just kept hearing that and thinking about it. I said, well, yeah, I don't know what else it would be, quite frankly. So you have these conventions for referring to a key figure. And you know, I mean, just if it helps, throwing C.S. Lewis into this, you know, he the way he understood myth, he understood the stories, and he didn't shy away from them. And he says, in Jesus, the myth became reality. Mm-hmm. That's his way of addressing that. That's not a bad way of addressing it. You know, where am I on that? I'm not sure. I'm thinking about it, and I think God understands but, us. But at it, least but he doesn't. He doesn't just. Blow he doesn't it off. shy away from the myth of it. Right. And again, by myth, we don't mean. I, I think I would want to use myth in this context exactly the way you're talking about. There are conventions mm-hmm. by which we tell these kinds of stories right. in the ancient world, and it's participating in that. Myth doesn't mean lie. Right. Myth means a way of telling a story, and again, just by analogy. The story of creation or Adam and Eve and things like that, th- th- those are also participating in ancient conventions that we know of from other cultures that have written creation stories that are older than the biblical story. So, you know, it's just, again, this is an exercise and not escaping the obvious, which is if you have, if, okay, if the Bible is a historical book, folks, that has consequences. Mm-hmm. That means it has context. And what in heaven's name doesn't have context? The question is only how do we interpret that? How do we handle that? What conclusions do we feel safe in drawing? And some people feel safe in drawing some very clear conclusions that others like myself might not be ready to draw. But the thing is that we're part of the conversation in some sense, right? Yeah. So maybe we can move into this last piece around just these conclusions. And I think we've we've peppered, you know, we haven't gone in a linear way because we've kind of peppered back and forth between these different pieces of the conversation. But I think what I'm taking away again is this idea that the Bible is constrained by tradition and by culture, and that's not a bug, but a feature. Right. That's not a problem to be overcome. That's something that has to be theologically embraced. Yeah. I would say, I mean, doctrinally embraced. Even if it hasn't been in the past, that doesn't mean it can't be now, because what is theology if not bringing all that stuff and that tradition into your present moment. And again, people will say, well, you can't just make things say what you want them to say. And I agree with that, but I think that's exactly what some conservatives are doing. 
they're making the Bible say what they want it to say based on their own culture, mm-hmm. which is a church culture, for example. And I'm looking at the historical context as at least a place to start, I think, that generates the theological kinds of conversations or doctrinal conversations. Right? Yeah, well, and it's being honest about, again, I think the Bible models this for us quite well. The purpose isn't brute facts, but it's meaning making. That's what Mark is doing. That's what Matthew's doing. That's what Luke is doing, is they're making meaning for their particular community. And I think it's only honest and authentic to acknowledge that we are doing that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always my challenge is certain traditions want to absolutize it and pretend they're not doing that. Right. And right. it's like, you are still participating in it, but you're making it seem like you're doing this once for all. There's only one right way to read it. But the Bible itself doesn't mind. It feels contrary to what the Bible itself is showing us. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it's more like, we may not get that absolutized universal thing, but what I can do, and this is where I feel like I've learned so much from my friends and colleagues who are people of color is that they're not interested in this abstract thing. They're interested in the meaning-making process. Mm-hmm. But right. they also realize they're doing it within their own context and within their own history. And I respect that. And I think that I can actually learn from that. What's harder is when we deny that we're doing that and right. we do it all the same. So maybe we should probably draw this to a close. We should draw this Shortly. to a close. Let me, let a couple of summary points. And I jotted these down because it helps me think through this a little bit. So one is that I would see the birth narratives as employing conventions. And part of those conventions is utilizing their own Jewish tradition, the Hebrew Bible. So whether it's Isaiah 7, right, or Psalm 2, or 2 Samuel 7, or something like that, they're using that. You might call that like the vertical context, right? They're reaching back into their own tradition and pulling it forward. They live in a in, in a Judaism which is always doing that anyway, but they're always bringing that and trying to bring the conversation between their moment and the past. The thing is that with the gospel writers, they're doing that with a faith in a man who they believe was distinct or unique or whatever word we want to use mm-hmm. and how to describe that. So, so it's it's bringing the Hebrew tradition as well to articulate. I want to say their understanding and their faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And I respect that, right? So I do think that they are, I don't know if constrained is the right word, Jared, but they are, the language they use is a factor of their time and place and their culture because they're humans. Yeah, but they're inspired by God. Okay, fine. But read the gospels for heaven's sake and and, and look at them from a historical perspective. Whatever it means to be inspired by God doesn't mean the culture is irrelevant. Well, you still have to take the factors yeah. There's still data there that There's shows this influence, right. regardless of what you mean by inspired. Yeah. And maybe the, the third thing is that one thing I'm pretty certain of, we, we can put to rest reading the Gospels as being free from the cultural influence. I mean, that's again, that seems like anybody who's, I think, studied the Bible in any formal setting, whether it's college or seminary, that's like a no, that, that's an obvious thing to say. But I think it's worth saying because it has implications, some of which we talked about today. And then the last point is that I think it's okay to have an internal conversation and also an open conversation in communities of faith where how can we address these factors that are very real for us in a historically conditioned and minded age that we are? How do we engage our tradition and particularly maybe even the creeds? I mean, I'm Episcopalian. We say the Nicene Creed every 
every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And I read it thinking of these factors, but I still read it. I'm participating in it. And it's meaning making for me as well. The question is, how does it make meaning for us? It's one thing confessing the incarnation. It's another thing to say, and I know exactly how it works. Right. <laughs> right. So I'm going to get to that word, Jared, that you don't like. What's that word? Mist. Yeah. Everyone say it together. Mystery. Mystery. And I say that with respect and obviously not walking away from the difficulties, but the way I sort of look at all this is I think the gospel writers were trying to get at something that they believed and they used the language of their time to do it. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to do the same thing. I don't know what that looks like. But I think whatever I'm grasping at is never going to reach the thing. So that, that's another way of talking about Jesus's, you know, distinctiveness or, or, or uniqueness or whatever, you know, with a dialogical perspective, with the factors, and also with people who also care about this stuff and being able to talk with them. And, you know, there are some communities of faith where that's much easier to do. And others where it's almost impossible to do. And I understand that too, but I think that's too bad. All right. Well, you know, gives us some food for thought as we're sitting around the Christmas table with our friends and family, as we're sitting around the Christmas tree, not opening ruining our presents. Christmas and not ruining no, Christmas. Enhancing Christmas. Enhancing. That's what we're trying to do. We're enhancing Christmas. We did. We're bringing it forward into our day and see, time. See, I hope, I hope you see that we're not, we didn't really ruin anything. We're just talking about stuff that you, it's like, talking about the sun without talking about the nature of the solar system. You just, you can't get away from it. Right. And again, what we're, we're doing the thing that we've always done, which is try to wrestle with these questions. What is the Bible and what do we do with it? And, and we can't again, avoid the factors that we've been doing, you know, kind of my final word here is this is what we've been doing for years and years at the Bible for all people with the Hebrew Bible and other things is recognizing this vertical context of how the tradition is using itself and ever evolving and how it's using that horizontal context of the time and place in which it is written. Mm -hmm. And we are doing the same thing. And that's what makes it so complex and so messy. We're bringing all that from our time and place to this ancient thing that had its own time and place that's been interpreted in dozens and dozens of other times and places Mm -hmm. and trying to make sense of it all. And that's a challenge. But I think for us, it is the task and it's the process that's rewarding mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to come to the conclusion. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to the Bible for front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community classes and other great resources, go to the Bible for front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way. If you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at the Bible for You've just made it through another episode of the Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, Faith for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.